What is up everyone? Ryan Ray here inside the war room as always. Today's guest is a good one. They're all good ones though, right? Of course they are. Today's guest is Michael Schumann, who is the author of the book Superpower Interrupted, the Chinese History of the World. He is also a contributor to The Atlantic and a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Previously, he was a correspondent for Time and the Wall Street Journal. I found him on the Atlantic, actually. That's how I come across one of his pieces that I thought was um, interesting. But anyways, so before we get into it, we got to pay them bills. Listen, website, ridenrysenior.com. That's my website, R-Y-A-N-R-A-Y-S-R.com. I use Bluehost. Bluehost is who I use for all my domains. If I have a domain, it's set there. Yours should be too. RyanRaySenior.com slash hosting is where you can go sign up. If you do, let me know. Shoot me an email, ryan at warroommedia.com, and I will give your website a plug on this great quality podcast. And before we go, you're listening on your iPhone, just scroll down, drop a five star, say, Ryan, you're the best, or five star and Ryan, you're the worst. You can say I'm the worst if you drop five stars. Like that's that's totally doable. What you cannot do is, is drop a one star and say I'm the best, right? So it's, it's five stars. You can say what you want. We'll read it on the podcast. With that being said, some more China talk with Michael Schumann. Um, let's get into it right now. Well, Michael, it is great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me on. So you caught my attention. I think people kind of going back and forth to get this interview for, oh, maybe a month or two now. But I saw an article from The Atlantic that you had published titled, China Isn't That Strategic. And this is one of the things that when I talk about China, I like to hear because there's some, there's some people who think, man, China's got the next 3,000 years mapped out every single day, and they're not <laughs> going to whiff. And there's other people, and I found myself in this camp, who's like, we're probably overstating that a bit. So when I saw your article, I was like, okay, here's a take. Let's see what's going on. So uh, maybe walk us through the genesis of the post and what made you write it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I hear, you know, you, you hear this stuff all, all the time that, oh, the Chinese are, are smarter than us and uh, they play the long game and, you know, they're always planning for the future. And I, I mean, there's, I, it's, not, it's not like it's completely untrue. I mean, Chinese certainly do like their planning. They still like their five-year plans and 10-year plans and targets for this and targets for the, the plan for everything in China. So I know exactly why people say that. And of course, you know, the Chinese government has been uh, tremendously successful in managing the economy over, over the last 40 years, and we really can't take that away from them. Uh, but, you know, it is a government, and China, you know, does have politics, even, of course, there's, it's a, it's a one-party state, but uh, it's not like there's no politics and, and that politics don't matter. Uh, you know, there are factions within the Communist Party. Uh, they do have to appeal to the public. Uh, they do want to be seen as popular within China and therefore legitimate uh, within China. So they do actually have to, on a certain level, worry about what their public is thinking about them. Uh, so this leads to you know, short-term political thinking in the same way uh, that you would see in the US or in, in, anywhere else. Uh, and you can, you, you can see this enter into its policy in various ways. I think most of all has to do with their continued fascination with their, with their growth rate. Uh, you know, the, the uh, economists will kind of almost, I think, universally say that this targeting of the growth rate 
has become detrimental for China, that it makes them follow economic policies that may not actually be great for the economy at the time because they, they're so insistent on meeting certain targets. And they're so insistent on meeting those targets because the government sees it as a measure of their success. It's something that they can sell to, to the public and the world, basically, you know, see how great we are and we're so confident. We always, you know, we, we keep these growth rates so high and our, everybody's so happy. So, um, you know, so that, that's, that's a, a perfect case of, of how like short-term political need kind of trumps what may actually be better for the economy over, over the long term. And, and I think the case I, I mentioned in that story is kind of the biggest example is their uh, policy towards uh, their population control and demographics. Uh, this is a case where, you know, their, the one child policy got incredibly entrenched and uh, it became part of kind of the, uh, it, it, it became so core to the political agenda of the Communist Party that uh, it became extremely difficult to change it, even though it had long, long, long outlasted its usefulness, if it was ever useful to begin with. Uh, in achieving whatever economicals that the government had in mind. There's, and, uh, but yet it, it went on and on and on and on. And that, that, that was a, a, another case where basically internal party politics and bureaucratic inertia was, was taking precedent over what was actually really good for the country in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. Um, if you were in, I don't know, 1720, and you're thinking, okay, for the next 300 years, uh, we want to plan our business. We're in the horse business. And man, we are going to invest in land to buy horses because people will be riding horses and using horses forever. That's a useless plan. Okay. And so um, it's a crazy analogy, but you can see that, that, that projecting things out, or if you're in the 1990s and you said, I'm going to invest in the payphone business in the US. Well, you've, you know, even that short decade, you lost that business. So planning out, just because you plan for a long term, doesn't mean you actually possess, and this isn't a knock on the Chinese, this is a knock on humanity. We don't possess the actual knowledge to plan things for long periods of time, especially in the modern age where technology is constantly changing. The other side to that is, is that it's not in a vacuum, right? So whatever China or the US or wherever wants to do, they aren't operating in a vacuum. They are dependent on all these other forces which they can't control. And, and so it seems that, um, you know, the third thing you, you touched on a little, a little bit here is, you know, and I always kind of make this joke about the DMV. I say, okay, we can't go to the DMV in the U.S. without waiting, you know, six hours to get our driver's license. Now take that and project that over a whole economy. Like there's going to be, they're going to hit some big home runs, and they have, as you mentioned, but they're also going to have some huge monumental whiffs because they just can't do it. There's too much bureaucracy. So I think that when you talk about this long-term strategy, it's okay. Yeah, that, that's quite possible that they, they're going to hit certain things better than other countries, but they're also going to have huge whiffs because it's just impossible, right, to possess all of the knowledge and to control things um, internally and externally that you need to do to execute on these plans. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there, I think there's, there's two points in that regard with China. You know, first, and I, this is my opinion, you will get different people who watch China saying the exact opposite of what I'm about to say. So, but, you know, I, there's a lot of credit given to China's, you know, form of state capitalism. Uh, for China's success. In my opinion, the success is really due to the capitalism part. Uh, it's not that the state didn't do a good job of steward, stewarding things along, but the reality is when you see where what, what created the growth, what created the jobs, 
what where do the really prominent companies come from? And you'll you'll find that invariably it happened in the private sector, either you know Chinese private investment in entrepreneurs or foreign investment and in, and in trade and these things. So, in, in many ways, the China story is is a story of basically the 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 success of classical economics. That you know if if it's it's markets, it's uh, it's trade, and it's the benefits of that. Uh, and I feel that the state role has always been kind of I, I I think exaggerated in in that story. And it if you believe that, then what you see going on in China right now is actually. I, I, it's actually kind of negative for China's future, where you're you're seeing a this, the the government of under Xi Jinping, the government is is reasserting itself and trying to gain more control over the economy and and certain extent. So I don't want to sidelining is too strong, but but uh, uh, kind of controlling and curtailing the the role that the private sector is really going is is going to have in the economy going forward. Um, and and that gets into to, to the second thing when you talk about planning, you know, a lot of the focus in, in Washington and around the world right now is is uh, is China's technology policy. You know, they're they're dumping tons of money into all kinds of you know cutting edge sectors, whether it's uh, electric vehicles, uh, semiconductors, all kinds of things like that. And this has created some kind of uh, a, a lot of concern in the U.S. and and Europe that uh, the Chinese are basically going to you know, beat everybody to the technology punch, that they're going to dominate the technologies of the future. But, you know, as you said, it's very difficult to plan for technology and what, what technologies are really going to take hold in the future and which ones are going to be successful and which ones are not. And I think that's especially true when you when you have the state trying to figure it out rather than rather than the uh, the private sector. There's there's no guarantee because the Chinese government is subsidizing all of these companies and industries, both public and private, that that will somehow lead to tremendous innovation and technological achievement. Uh, it might. I'm not saying it's not going to, and it, it may work, as you said, it can work in some circumstances and fail in other circumstances. Uh, but, you know, there's no, I, I, I fear that I, I, people look at what's going on in China and they see this almost direct straight line between the, the government money and subsidization and government planning. And there's a direct line to some kind of technological dominance. And it's really just not that simple. Yeah, okay. So I think we actually agree. Um... On a lot based on what you said there, I would say the credit you give to the CCP is the fact that they kind of change their their mind, if you will, and, and kind of open things up, right? Um, and so that is kind of what I say credit. That's kind of the credit they get. And then now they've reversed that policy and they're they're kind of tightening things up. Um, if you look at North Korea, you know North Korea, I think um, I always kind of make the joke that they're the shrewdest of all the the the, the communist regimes because they know that you can't open up at all. Once you open up, you've kind of let the cat out of the bag and you can't stop it. So they are always trying to stop any kind of outside influence. China um, tried to open up um, or did open up at, you know, on some level. And when they did, um, you saw this huge economic boom come in. Um, um, and then obviously that they've kind of pulled that back. My read on that is that it went too well, almost like like they, they had too much wealth. And when you have wealth, um, let's talk about from the Chinese perspective, when you have wealth, people begin to start wanting to keep wealth, A, and B, they're like, you know, I don't like you telling me what you, <laughs> like you tell me that anymore. I have an opinion too. I'm pretty smart. I've made a lot of money. Um, and so the CCP is trying to almost do damage control 
on on some of the the um, offspring, if you will, of their opening up, um, and then now trying to pull that back. What is your read on that? Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's pretty much spot on. I mean, the you know the Communist Party cannot tolerate uh, any independent or possibly independent centers of power, right? So what you did have happening in, in China is that because of the the rapid economic development, the success of certain entrepreneurs, that you started to see, you know, big companies, especially tech companies, uh, gaining a tremendous amount of, of, of influence in China, a tremendous amount of wealth, tremendous amount of influence over society, and of course, a tremendous amount of data. You know, this is, this is a, a totally parallel to the discussion in the US about what to do about Facebook and Google. It, it, it's, it's very similar, except in China, because of the nature of the Communist Party, it, it takes on uh, a different character, right? I mean, the, the government you know, in Washington may be concerned about Facebook's impact on, on society, but they don't necessarily think Facebook is, is a direct challenge to, America, to, 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 to the American state. But you know, in, in China, and the, the, the way the Communist Party thinks about these things is that they, they will come to see these, these businesses and, and entrepreneurs as basically a direct threat to their, their ability to rule and their ability to dominate. Uh, and uh, I think along with that as well, there's been growing concern about other aspects, uh, what they would perceive as negative aspects. Uh, to to the the rapid growth story, and one of them is is uh, widening income inequality, which of course is a is a problem in the U.S. and and elsewhere and elsewhere. Uh, in China, again, that takes on kind of extra political consequences. They don't they don't want to have a a disgruntled public. Uh, so this the, what you're seeing happen in terms of this kind of comeback of the state has has multiple facets to it. But what it really gets down to is the the desire of the Communist Party and the leadership of the party to to maintain basically its total grip on on the country and the economy. Okay. So with that being said, one of the things that, that I want to get your take on here is, and I'm always an advocate of this, which is uh, so I'm not I don't advocate for a war between the US and China. I think that's that would be um, terrible for everyone involved for a lot of reasons. And I don't think we're I don't think we're, we're headed that way, despite what some might disagree with me on. Um, but what I do say is, okay, if you want regime change, you want pressure, China actually tells you how to do that. And, and, and a lot of uh, more of the, the China minds, the, the scholars, if you will, disagree with me on this, but I'm curious what, what your thoughts is, is they, they make it very clear. They don't want you talking about the things that they don't want you talking about. They are afraid that those ideas get not with the Jack Ma of the world, but the random person on the street. And we saw this with the Hong Kong protests. Um, we see this with how they monitor WeChat and all this stuff, um, how they're influencing American films. They are, I don't know if petrified is the right word, but they're, 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 they're terrified of free thought entering their society and questioning their power. And I don't know why in the West, maybe we take it for granted, but I don't know why we don't see that for what it is, which is the CCP is, it, it's, they make no secret about it. They do not want free thinkers um, that would question their authority. Why does the West not try to triple down on that strategy? There's no violence involved. There's no conflict involved. It's just simply saying the things that they don't want you to say. That's what drives them crazy. 
Well, I, I'm not I'm not quite sure what efforts you think Washington, you know, Washington could be making in in that regard. I mean, you you're you're right that uh, the 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 Communist Party is extremely concerned about uh, public dissent of of any kind, and they see it, you know, basically any any minor bit of criticism uh, or questioning of the government uh, in in a fundamental way, not a practical way. You, you will see some debate in China over, you know, specific certain policies and things like that. But in terms of a, you know, a, a fundamental way about, you know, the right of the party to rule and how the government works. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They're extremely afraid of any kind of actual dissent. Uh, I find it a little bit bewildering because when you're in, when you live in China and you're there, you, it's very hard to see how, it, it's very hard to see the threats to the to Communist Party rule. Uh, they're pretty well entrenched and they're not necessarily unpopular among a certain percentage of the population as well. It's impossible to say what that percentage is uh, for different reasons, but, you know, they're not necessarily unpopular uh, either. So it's always been somewhat bewildering to me about why they are seem so afraid of any kind of independent, uh, uh, independent thinking and on political and, and social issues but nevertheless that that's that's where they are and I and you and you see this in uh, taking the shape you know increasing censorship uh, within within China increasing control over media increasing control over social media uh, more uh, ideological indoctrination recently just a, a few weeks ago the government mandated that that schools at all levels had to have uh, on in their curriculum, the teaching of Xi Jinping thought. So we're back to that kind of ideological indoctrination as, as well. Uh, and, you know, they obviously they feel that controlling information and controlling what people know and don't know and controlling what people can say and write and what they can't say and write is is critical to perpetuating the Communist Party in, in power, uh, despite all their tremendous success. Uh, and despite the fact that, you know, as I said, you know, they're not necessarily unpopular, uh, but but the, the party still feels the need to kind of, you know, continue to double down on this this type of, of control. Yeah. So on, on what Washington could do, and I'm not a big, let's add a bunch of laws and policy kind of guy, but a couple of things that come to mind. Um, first off, when the CCP, I think, challenges the Western leaders like a few months ago, that's probably more than a few months um, at the UN, they said something to the effect of, hey, you know, the Uyghur stuff is nonsense. If you don't believe us, come see. Well, we should have went and made the Chinese not allow us in or make us like we should have taken them to task on that. Like, OK, yeah, we're going to come. We're going to come now. And we get caught up in all this bureaucratic. Hey, we got to like they they understand on that level how the game plays and how the U.S. will respond. And so they kind of continue to, to win those exchanges, it feels, because they'll challenge Western nations, come see for yourself. And then no one actually goes, or if they go, it's months later and everyone's forgotten. Um, and so they, so we kind of fall into the trap of responding like that. But the, beyond that, what I would say is, you know, so many multinational corporations in the U.S. Um, and the movie industry, um, they're all, listen, and I am, just for your benefit and the listeners of this, I'm, hey, we should work with China as much as possible. But they all kind of play this game where, um, they're kind of in American politics on some level, but they're not in Chinese politics. They may have Taiwan listed on the website. They probably don't. They kind of, and, and I, I think the government in the U.S. could easily just point out, hey, that you know these are things that 
we should work with U.S.-based companies on how to resolve because most of the public in the U.S. isn't aware of what's going on. They're finding out now. Um, and I think a lot of Americans kind of get frustrated when they realize that companies won't list Taiwan on their website or you have to dig really deep or, um, you know, they, they you know that Disneyland here is um, not open, but it's open in China. And it's like, how's that work? I was like, oh, well, China actually owns it. And so there's a lot of this weird kind of double standards that you see that the government could at least, uh, again, I don't, want, I don't want laws or policies, talk about and point out um, to bring attention because that's, I think that's the easy way to put the pressure on them. Uh, yeah, I'm not calling for uh, a policy per se, but um, and to your point about the big tech companies you mentioned a minute ago, um, you know, when the Daryl Morey tweet uh, a few years ago that kind of started the whole NBA fiasco, um, it was weird because it took a while for people in the U.S. to realize, wait, Chinese citizens don't even have Twitter. So why is like what 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 is going on here? So I I think that a little bit better education about how information is disseminated uh, in China would be helpful um, from the U.S. side, and we, we don't do that. Well, I, I let me kind of separate out a couple of things. I mean, in, in terms of you know what what you see happening uh, in China from a from a, a media perspective is uh, there. They, the Chinese want to control the narrative about China, right? So that's why they're putting a lot more pressure on international media. Uh, they want, you know, everybody around the world to be learning about China from their, their you know, state-run media outlets to, to present a certain, you know, image and story of China. You know, the Uyghur issue is, is one of them, right? They would, they would prefer that everybody believe their, their news media on what's happening in, in Xinjiang than what you're hearing from the rest of the world. But I, I would not, in my opinion, I don't think that's been particularly successful. I mean, there are always people who are going to be reading the Chinese media and thinking it's true. But on, a, on a, an international scale, uh, I, you know, there's no way of, well, there is some way of measuring this because when you, when you look at, at international surveys that are done by like the Pew Research Center uh, about attitudes towards China uh, around in different countries around the world, they've almost universally soured on, on China. And, and, and that tells me that this, these kind of media campaigns and propaganda campaigns that you see coming out of China, both in regular media and in social media, are really not having, having the effect the Chinese want them to have. Otherwise, people's impressions of China would be would be becoming more positive, not less, not not less so. Um, on the issue of, of companies doing business in China, uh, you know, this is this is going to be a very difficult uh, challenge for the, the U.S. going forward because you have a, a a lot of American companies that do that that get a significant amount of their business from China. I think what's misunderstood about the U.S.-China relationship, there's a lot of focus on supply chains and, you know, where where your toys are made or where shoes are made and what you see in the Walmart shelves, where is that made? That's actually kind of not the core of the U.S.-China economic relationship. It's really the way that U.S. companies have invested in China for the China market uh, or have sales in the China market that are a very large percentage of the revenues. And this includes companies like General Motors and Nike and Starbucks. You know, there's, um, there's a lot of American companies that are very, very heavily involved in the Chinese economy. Uh, and and that's, that's a whole different story because you can, you know, eventually because of costs and other factors, a lot of 
supply chains that that are involved in the export of of big of uh, a lot of stuff, consumer goods and so on from China to the U.S. You know that's going to eventually reorient itself, but. You know, getting GM out of China, where they sell forty percent of their cars, you know, is 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 a whole different story. Uh, but but the the companies are coming under under pressure. I think with the exact issue that you're talking about, that you know, there's a certain level of hypocrisy where you have a company like Nike that kind of picks up social social justice causes in the U.S., but then doesn't seem to have any problem with doing a very large business in China. Uh, you know, this has not gone unnoticed. It's not going to notice in the public. And it certainly hasn't gone unnoticed in, 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 in Washington. And I believe that, that a lot of people in Washington are becoming irritated by this, that they, they feel that there's companies that let lecture, lecture them uh, on these kind of social issues. You know, and then are very heavily invested in China, and they seem to think that's all, that's okay. Uh, so I think I think that that's an issue that's going to become becoming more and more a part of the U.S.-China discussion about what what do you do with these companies that are that are doing this kind of business in China, and it's so important to them, and therefore it's so important to you know American jobs and shareholders, things like that, right? So it's 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 not just creating jobs in China is creating jobs and, and income in the U.S. as well. And, and But, you know, you have this increasing tension between the U.S. and China. You have increasing concerns about human rights issues in China. So what do you do with all these, these companies? And I, I don't think people have become close to finding the answer to that yet. In regards to the souring polls that you mentioned, how much do you blame China's foreign policy on that, uh, specifically the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing watching Chinese foreign policy and how incredibly counterproductive it is. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's I, the, you know, China really had an opportunity uh, during the, uh, during the Trump administration, uh, when, uh, you know, President Trump was not particularly popular around the world. Uh, and, and then that kind of dovetailed with the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, and the US at the beginning really struggled to, to, to deal with the COVID pandemic. And, and China, whether you agree with their methods or, or not, uh, got, got a handle on the outbreak uh, uh, much, much, more, much more quickly. And China really had, you could say a positive at that point, had an opportunity to kind of push back American influence around the world and and expand and expand their own influence in a positive way that they had this this story to tell, um, and they basically they basically blew it uh, with this what they're calling you know wolf warrior uh, diplomacy this constant need to to uh, be belligerent and threaten and try to coerce uh, other countries that have disagreements with China even relatively minor disagreements uh, and. You see in countries that have been the target of this, Australia is really the, the prime example, which has come under tremendous pressure economically from China over making really not a particularly interesting statement that there should be an uh, uh, independent uh, investigation to the origins of COVID. Uh, Australia was, of course, not the only government to, to suggest such a thing. So, um, but, you know, this was on top of others other steps that, that Australia had taken 
that uh, that the Chinese weren't happy with. And then so Beijing launched this very, very aggressive campaign of economic coercion, boycotting their products, things like that, that have that have that have done some damage to the Australian economy. But what what is really damaged is Australian opinion about China. And when, when you look at at surveys that are done either locally or or you know again uh, in in some international organizations, uh, they they all show this this tremendous drop off in in public opinion uh, about China. Uh, so what what's remarkable about this is that it's very obvious to see how how other countries and other people are reacting to to this around the world. You know, you've seen a similar a similar souring of opinion on China within the United States in the last three, four years. Uh, and yet there doesn't seem to be any reassessment in Beijing about what their foreign policy should be. They, they seem to think that ultimately they're so big and they're China, they're powerful enough and they're getting more powerful. And, and eventually everyone is just simply going to have to comply with what they want. And, and, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter what opinion is about it today. I, that's a guess. It's one of these things that people who follow China talk, are starting to talk, talk about endlessly because everyone's trying, everyone's trying to find some way of making sense of it all. Uh, you know, why, why do something that is obviously alienating a tremendous number of your neighbors and trading partners? Uh, it's, it's, it is, it's very, very confusing. But that's what they're doing. Well, right. And so um, I have a couple of thoughts on that. And I'm curious, sure. These, yeah. are, these are just the uninformed asking the informed here. So the uninformed <laughs> um, would, would think a couple of things. One, um, just looking back historically, um, China has done things, especially with Taiwan. Um, but, but and I think last year you saw this with India as well on some level. You mentioned Australia. It's good for the CCP to have external threats to bolster support at home. Right. So you need us to protect. To protect you from these uh, imperialists who are going to come, um, and and the documentary um, that came out, um, oh gosh, last uh, what's it called? I have to find it in a second. Um, about the pandemic, in um, in oh my gosh, <laughs> last breath or with last breath or in the breath, um, in the same breath, in the same breath, I think is what it's called. Um, kind of touched on this some about how the how the 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 CCP is always putting this narrative. Um, that hey, you, we got to watch out, or the imperialists will come and you know sell us stuff and do all stuff about us. So, so there's that one thing um, that they do. The, the second thing is it kind of goes back to this planning idea and this miscalculation. So, you know, if you, I, I've, I've just got through. I say it's right there. I'm about three fourths way through through China's civilian army and kind of listening, uh, re- reading through that um, and some of the tactics they used back then is quite interesting. And those tactics I think might have worked or they did work um, uh, for periods in, in the pre-internet age. But I don't think that it's, it's easy. And I, this isn't a China problem. I think governments across the world are finding that all the, all the things that they used to do, it's harder to conceal the bad things, and it's harder to convince the public of the good things. And so China has that problem just the same, which is, you know, if you're going to go do something, if you're going to go build a road in, you know, uh, Nigeria or whatever, okay, well, you can say whatever you want to, but then someone with a camera phone can go out there and take a picture and put it on the internet. And if it's a terrible road, okay, bad. Uh, if it's, it, everyone, everyone's going to find out about it. If it's a good road, that's great too. But it's it's really hard to to control the narrative. And so I think that that kind of goes to the playing thing. So two things. One, um, externally, I wonder how much they're trying to rally support at home. And then two, their old diplomatic ways, uh, but they used to do things, 
just are going to struggle in the internet age. That's my thoughts. What do you agree? Disagree? No. What do you think? Well, I, I there, there's a, a, a couple of things going on. I mean, I think you're right that uh, that China, the Chinese government feels that it uh, not so much that it needs external enemies, uh, but that it, it has created uh, a narrative of China being the victim. Uh, and, you know, they if you read the Chinese media, they talk all the time about, you know, this age of humiliation, this period starting generally with the opium war uh, in, the, in the 1840s and carrying, carrying through to the Second World War uh, when they were, uh, you know, bullied and invaded by uh, imperialist powers, uh, mainly from the West, but also Japan, of course. And, uh, and that, you know, China was weakened and the world took advantage of China. And, and now it's our time to stand up. And that's a word, that's a term stand up that the Chinese Communist Party has been using for, for decades. It's time for China to stand up. So uh, I, I think what you're seeing in some of the belligerence in China's foreign policy, it's just that, this feeling like, you, you, you know, you, you spent all this time pushing us around and telling us what to do. Well, you know what? You can't do that anymore. And now we're now, you know, it's our turn. It's our moment. I think that's part of it. But I think what's also the, uh, misunderstood is how much Chinese foreign policy is a function of domestic politics. And, uh, you know, the, the current president, Xi Jinping, has, has painted himself as a champion of the nation, that he is the one who's going to make China great again. He is the one who's going to, he calls it the Chinese dream, the, reju the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And this is tied into this, this narrative of victimhood that, that you know, now, now Xi Jinping is a man who's going to right the injustices that China has faced. And if that's your domestic political narrative, uh, it makes it very difficult for you to compromise on international issues. It boxes you in because it, you, you, don't, you can't be seen locally, domestically uh, as being weak, right? So I, I, it, it almost, it, it kind of, I think, ties Xi Jinping's hands in dealing with different foreign policy issues because he, he always has to be seen as the tough guy and whatever situation uh, that you see China getting into with whatever country, including the United States, the domestic media will always will always paint things that that China is a tough guy. China was was telling the U.S. that you know they're they're bad guys and they have to stop doing these bad things. Uh, China is standing up for national interests like Taiwan, um, and. And I, this make make great this this may make great domestic politics, but it makes for uh, a terrible foreign policy, because it just it just constrains your ability to deal with different situations in different ways and be flexible, and and find ways to to solve problems that China is having with other countries rather than basically becoming uh, a fixated. On a, on a certain narrative that then you you kind of have a difficult you 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 have very very little uh, ability to change once you've locked yourself into it. No, I think that's, those are both uh, great points. And so, with that being said, being the the tough guy, right, that that pushes you on this trajectory, and, and you really 
have two options. You are the tough guy and you always take it to the next level or you ultimately find out that you're really not the tough guy. And we all find that out. And so you have to pretend to be the tough guy and that's really the worst spot. So if you look at, and I, I, maybe you disagree here, but I, I don't think North Korea is really a tough guy. I think they, they like to pretend they're the tough guys, uh, but they'll they'll shoot their rockets into the ocean and, and thump their chest like they did something. Um, I don't think they want any type of real war, but that's they're pretending to be the tough guy. Um, and so they kind of get pigeonholed in this corner where everyone kind of laughs at them, like, oh my gosh, they can't they can't fire a rocket. It's kind of laughable. Um, what is the moment? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right, because that's what's happening, for example, uh, you know, let's let's take the Taiwan case, right? Where uh, China, in the last roughly uh, year and a quarter or so, has greatly intensified their military intimidation of of, of Taiwan, and this is scary stuff uh, because you know they're flying in some cases dozens of jets, basically into the Taiwan defense zone, and and it, it's scary because it's the kind of thing that could that could create an un, an unfortunate accident, and then you end up in a in a in a conflict when you didn't really necessarily intend on one. But, um, and you know, the Chinese continue to do this, and it continues to raise tensions. And actually, getting into what you were talking about earlier, it ends up being counterproductive because it's it's pushing Taiwan farther away from China, uh, right? Rather than winning hearts and minds, you're 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 pushing them far, you're pushing them closer to the United States in doing so. Um, yet he he Xi Jinping can't seem to adjust and maybe try some other policy option. They do have other policy options. They could take dialogue more seriously, for instance, and, and other things. Uh, but they don't seem to have any interest in in doing so. Uh, and you know, I think there's multiple reasons for Taiwan is an especially sensitive issue for the government in Beijing because they because the reunification of of Taiwan is is such a, a core issue to kind of its its uh, its national and international agenda. Um, but so so it, that makes it especially difficult to kind of change course. But you know, it it's he the 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 government in Beijing has has gotten itself to a pattern that is that is very obviously negative for everybody. Uh, and it's very hard to see now that they're on that path, how do they get how do they get themselves off that path? And they may not they, you know, there's a lot of debate in Taiwan and China circles, you know, does Beijing actually want to use military force to unify Taiwan? Uh, you know, we we don't know. Uh, I tend to fall into the not now uh, group, uh, but uh, we don't know. But he's locked himself on, onto a path one way or the other uh, where you're talking about an in, increasingly uh, destabilized situation in the Taiwan Strait. And that's really not positive for anybody. Right. And they have the Olympics coming up, which is, you know, a big deal. You know, they want to tell the world that, you know, it's uh, China's here and is this big, huge ceremony. And they've, they've really kind of cast this this um, preparation for the the olympics coming up and so you kind of have these opposite ends of the spectrum one is the re reunification of taiwan and then you have the olympics but the shrewd thing they've done with taiwan i think is is if you look at their lending in africa there's only one to my knowledge maybe this has changed but only one nation in africa that actually recognizes taiwan as its own entity all the other nations don't and so they've done a good job i think globally 
of kind of painting Taiwan into a corner to where the average citizen of the world might not realize, you know, what Taiwan is or what it isn't or what the story there is. And so um, from the media perspective, to kind of go back to that narrative, I think they do have a, at least an advantage there to the um, to the non-China watchers of the world that you know, China is trying to get back Taiwan. Well, I thought Taiwan was part of China. And so I, I, what are your thoughts on that? I, I do think from the media standpoint, it would take a lot for most citizens globally to understand the, the distinction between Taiwan and China. Well, I... <laughs> Uh, look, I mean, the U.S. doesn't recognize uh, Taiwan. Uh, you know, yes, the Chinese have been successful in basically, you know, politically marginalizing uh, Taiwan in many respects. But, you know, at the same time, Taiwan actually, for as, as small a place as it is, uh, it actually plays a tremendously important role uh, in the global economy and global supply chains when you look, for example, at their chip industry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Taiwan has a an outsized role for a place that's not supposed to be a country. Um, but, uh, you know, I, uh, but again, we're getting into the, the counterproductive nature of a lot of Chinese policy. If, if an ultimate goal of the Chinese Communist Party is to uh, have unification with China, with, 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 with Taiwan, and the stated you know, goal is that it's going to be peaceful unification. Well, you know, then pressuring and marginalizing Taiwan around the world in the way that they have, you know, again, is not necessarily winning a whole lot of friends in Taiwan. And when you look at public service, public opinion polls and surveys in Taiwan, you'll see the same trends that are happening everywhere else where, where people are more negative to the mainland, more opposed to unification, uh, more in favor of Taiwan independence. So what is what is the ultimate result of Chinese quote unquote success in uh, in in beating beating down the world into accepting China's position on the status of, of Taiwan uh, is you have a political situation that has made peaceful unification, the stated goal, less likely. Uh, so you know, it, 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 this is where these, these issues with Beijing, as you said earlier, you know, become so confused. It's, it's like, what are they actually really trying to achieve? And it gets back to what you were started this whole conversation with. Are they really strategic? If they, had, if they were really strategic and they, in, in terms of their foreign policy, then they would be do a better job of connecting these dots and understanding the cause and effect of their policies, which they don't seem to be able to do. Uh, so they, they tend to have conflicting policy goals in their, in their foreign policy. And they seem to have trouble understanding why those conflicting goal, goals don't, don't connect. It's the same thing, for example, with India. Uh, the Chinese really very badly uh, want India, for example, to support things like their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, and the Indians don't. Uh, and why not? Well, because they've alienated the Indians in all kinds of other ways by harassing them in various border disputes, by uh, supporting, heavily supporting Pakistan, India's kind of mortal enemy. Uh, and then the Chinese don't seem to really understand why they don't get cooperation from India in, in other ways. Uh, and it, they don't seem to be able to kind of connect the obvious dots that everyone else seems to be able 
to to connect. So, you know, this this gets at the idea that are they really kind of masterminds of strategy? Uh, and you know, definitely in their foreign policy, the answer is kind of a big no. Okay, so I'll let, we'll wrap it up. I think with this question, the next five years, do things get yeah. better or worse between the U.S. and China? Uh, unfortunately, I've gotten quite negative on U.S.-China relations. Um, I, I, there's growing consensus in Washington uh, that China is a threat. Um, you know, I, you know, the, the different parts of the political spectrum in the U.S. can't seem to agree on much of anything. But on China, they actually, generally speaking, do agree uh, that China is a threat and that that threat has to be countered. Uh, and then on the on the Chinese side, um, they're they're digging in in on all kinds of policies, whether it's their human rights issues, uh, whether it's their economic policies, uh, and their and their increasingly uh, belligerent foreign policy. That all is doing is feeding this belief in Washington that China is a threat, um, and the 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 Chinese side. Uh, is been so far completely unwilling to take any responsibility for the souring in relations. It, it's all, uh, it's, it's Washington's fault. It's wrongdoings in Washington. So therefore, if there's going to be better relations, the changes have to come in Washington. Well, you know what, that, that's not going to work, right? I mean, it takes two people in any relationship, right? If there's a conflict, you know, it ends up being both sides. So if the two sides are really going to, to come together, then both parties are going to have to sit down and show a willingness to compromise on certain issues. And the Chinese have, have shown absolutely no willingness to do so. My understanding, I mean, it's become, it's, it's become clear that there are some talks going on right now quietly to try to resolve at least some of the simpler issues that uh, of contention between the two. And, and maybe they'll be able to kind of bring tensions down uh, and get back to some kind of working relationship, which I think would be great. But I don't think the fundamental issues are, are changing uh, very much. Uh, China um, in, increasingly wants to assert its power around the world. Uh, it wants to promote authoritarian values. It wants to change the world order as it now exists. Uh, it, uh, they, they, the, the Chinese are you know, harassing uh, allies that are close to the United States, like Australia, uh, they're becoming more repressive at, uh, at home. You, you mentioned the, the Hong Kong situation. And uh, I, don't, I don't see how any government in Washington, whoever, whichever party is in the White House or controlling Congress, is going to look at what the Chinese are doing and saying, hey, you know what, I think this is okay. So until there's fundamental policy changes uh, going on in Beijing, and there's no sign of them. Uh, I I don't see how things can fund can can fundamentally improve. I, I think maybe they can get less tense, uh, and as I said, maybe get back to some form of more constructive dialogue. But you know, the foundation has has changed dramatically from the idea that maybe China and the U.S. can be partners. To uh, to a foundation where it seems the two are heading towards an increasingly adversarial relationship. Okay, and the book is "Superpower Interrupted." That is 
um, your book. Uh, you also write for The Atlantic. Anywhere else that you want me to direct people to to find more of your work? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a, a consistent columnist uh, for Bloomberg Opinion. Okay. Uh, is another thing, yeah, and uh, a few other places, but that that that's my main stuff. Okay, so we'll link to the book, Bloomberg, and The Atlantic, uh, the articles that I found specifically uh, that maybe reach out to you. Thank you for your time. This has been fantastic, and um, look forward to following your work on China in the future. Thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks for thanks for having me on.